origin stories are how we understand how heroes or villains become who they are. The origin stories in comic books or stories give us foundations for the character's intentions, goals. Batman has always been one of my favorite characters, and his origin story is iconic. It's a very tragic one. It's a profound one that shapes him for his entirety. Suffering great injustice as a young kid, he had his parents murdered. And if I'm spoiling this for you, sorry, Batman's been around for a long time. He suffered great injustice. His parents were murdered as they were leaving a movie theater or a show and walking down a dark alley. And that led him in his life to grow to want to seek justice, even cross over to the line of vengeance. Bruce Wayne grew up as this kind of iconic story that I really resonated with because he didn't have supernatural powers. He developed this mastery of various martial arts, various skills, intellect. He became one of the world's greatest detectives. He sought in all parts of his life to become the pinnacle of human potential. I mean, having trillions of dollars really didn't hurt either, having all those gadgets and toys. He's also very complicated, isn't he? If you read his story and read the various iterations throughout the time, he's one of the earliest, if not the first, anti-hero. He does the right thing. He isn't really always an example to be followed, even as he does the right thing, though. Some iterations of Batman, if you watch movies, read comics, follow stories, they jump right into him as an adult, as the Dark Knight fighting criminal masterminds. But the ones that always resonated with me the most were the ones that really kind of shed a light on who he was, helping me understand where he came from, developing a deeper understanding and appreciation of what he does as the Dark Knight. Samson is probably the most well-known judge. He's given the most amount of text of any judge, four chapters. And if you've been paying attention to what I've been saying again and again, though, this is a downward spiral. And so actually, if you have more written about you, the worse you are. He's the worst of all the judges. He's the last judge, too. We know him probably most famously for his strength, his womanizing, his serious mistreatment of foxes, turning them into torches. My daughter loves foxes. She has not read Samson yet. She will be horrified. But how many of us know his origin story, where he came from, why he became who he was. It's not hidden from us. It's actually in the text. It's just not the most exciting parts of his story. And we get his origin story in Judges 13. It's foundational for understanding Samson, the culture around him, and most importantly, it shows us how amazing this God is despite rebellious, sinful humanity. This origin story serves as a mirror for our spiritual condition, just like the rest of the book has been. There are two main themes I want us to look at when it comes to Samson's origin story. And it's not just important for details to fill in about Samson and who he becomes. It's really foundational to who his struggles are and actually, or what his struggles are and what our struggles are in our time. And those two main themes I want us to look at are apathy and control. He grows up in a world filled with apathy and human striving for manipulation and control. And I want us to look at this origin story that shapes him 
and really does shape him as you, we will look at next week the Samson story as him as an adult. And the origin here helps understand why he's so apathetic where he is, why he's so interested in control the way he is. Let's look at apathy first. And it's actually very subtle, this apathy. Look at verse 1 again. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. This phrasing should be familiar if you've been reading and following with Judges. You're almost probably numb to it at this point. You might just skip it over it because it sounds so repetitive. You've come across this multiple times. The people, after a season of peace, they again do what's evil in the sight of the Lord. And then the Lord in His holiness judges them with a foreign enemy. This is the third time the Philistines are used. We've come across this phrase ever since Othniel. But there's one thing that breaks the pattern here that's different from the other iterations of this phrase in this pattern. What's absent here is not by accident either. Did you notice if you're following along with Darren's reading, verses 1 and 2, what's missing there? They do what's evil in the sight of the Lord. What's missing from the pattern? There's no crying. There's no crying out to the Lord. Now, previously, I did argue that this crying out to the Lord doesn't necessarily include repentance. And as we looked at Jephthah last week, it certainly confirmed, at least in this particular case, it was completely lacking in genuine repentance. Generally, their cries have been because of remorse and regret or their misery, but not because of a confession of sin. But at least they cried out. But here in Samson, generations later, we see in every cycle there's a crying out to the Lord after God uses a foreign enemy to judge them, but here they don't cry at all. There's no crying out for certainly not repentance. There's not even a cry for the misery of the oppression that they're facing. Increasingly, what this means then, they're becoming like Canaan, where the oppression from foreign nations, the oppression from spiritual matters like the worship of Baal around them, the tolerance of the Philistines, they, they don't even actually recognize that this is a problem anymore. They kind of just live with the status quo. They've become apathetic, accustomed to oppression. It's kind of this hopeless resignation that kind of begins to set in. You begin to say to yourself, or maybe there's even a national kind of cry out that says, this is just the way it's going to be. And eventually, this almost becomes the ceasing of Israel. It's a picture about how terrible it is when you find an evil so irresistible and you turn to it again and again, despite all that God does to try and help you, and then eventually just overcomes you. And it begins to steal your identity, your strength, your dignity. They are apathetic about their oppression, satisfied or at least kind of just in this malaise, just okay with the status quo. You see this happen in na national oppression. You see this in wars. You see this in colonizing efforts from history. And it's easy for us as you're looking at this and you maybe notice the apathetic Israel no longer crying and you just say, well, what's wrong with them? Well, it's easier always to look at someone else's problems and say that they have a problem. We begin to wonder, how could they 
be okay with this, with Baal worship surrounding them? How could they be okay with foreign nations oppressing them when God had promised to them, this land is yours? How could people who've tasted and seen the goodness of God, seen God part seas, do miracles, save them again and again, how could they become so unresponsive, dull, and indifferent? We point fingers at them sometimes in our pride or at least our ignorance and we forget to see us. In fact, we are greater condemned for our apathy, if we have apathy, because we have greater revelation than they ever had in Christ. We have infinitely greater salvation. We have the living, if you are in Christ, you have the living presence of God, the Holy Spirit in you, and yet we can also become just like them, apathetic, unresponsive, dull, asleep. That's why this, the hymn it resonates with us when he sings, prone to wander. We're still prone to wander, apathetic. Apathy, I think in this case, as we're reading it here, comes because of oppression and it just kind of becomes, you know, coexistent with the status quo of their time. We in the West, in the United States at least, we're not apathetic because of oppression, I think actually this is a greater strategy of Satan. We become apathetic because we're comfortable. Something I've learned during this year's uh, effort to do marathon training, um, a lot of lessons from physical things that apply to spiritual things. Spiritual things matter even more. Spiritual disciplines are much harder than physical ones, which is why Paul says, you know, physical things are of little value, of greater value are spiritual things, and it's true. Uh, but those things are all often tied together. Um, your body, our bodies, are naturally leaning towards comfort, aren't they? Like just the natural inclination of our bodies is towards feeling comfortable, to avoid pain. The immediate moment you feel pain is when you kind of run back towards the status, isn't it? And so if you experience prolonged comfort, long, any kind of pain is difficult. So the painful thing about training for any kind of significant competition or athletic race is that you have to get used to leaning into discomfort. You have to, have to get your body, your mind, your heart okay with a circumstance that does not feel good. I'm really thankful uh, for my running training. It actually came from my high school cross-country coach. Um, he, at the time, I thought he was the devil. Um, he would not only give us normal, you know, practices where we would have to run, you know, when you're in high school, you don't want to run anything. But you, basically, kids are in cross-country for a couple of reasons, right? You're training for your other sport or because you're so inathletic, at least this place will take you. So that's why I was in cross-country because I was no longer good enough for soccer and I didn't want to do nothing. And so I joined cross-country. But they make you run five miles and then they make you run a whole bunch of really crazy runs. And, but then some days, you know, we're, like, it's in Michigan, so that's where I grew up, and it's, like, pre, like, it's, like, in the fall, so sometimes the rain is really bad, or it'll turn into hail or snow slightly uh, right before the season ends. And on those particular days when the weather's the worst, and we expect him to, like, cancel practice because lightning has occurred that day, those are the days he's like, no, you're going to run. So as long as there's not active lightning, he didn't put us out into complete danger, he wasn't that crazy, but he was crazy. He would grab us, 
And he would say, no, you're going to run in the worst of circumstances because if you can run now, you will always run. And it trains your mind, your heart to get over discomfort. So when things are better. And that's the hardest thing, right? Because when you're comfortable, you just kind of want to, and you have a prolonged comfort, you get very uneasy with anything that feels dis- discomforting. I'll have to say, apathy for the Israelites was bad because it came from prolonged oppression. I think ours is worse because we have comfort. Satan today doesn't need to really attack a church that's overly satisfied with itself and comfortable. In fact, that's one of the greatest strategies of Satan, I think, today. It's more effective to lure the church into apathetic comfort than to persecute it because if Satan's paying attention to all the times he's persecuted the church in history, every single time persecution happens in the church, what happens? It grows. (laughs) See how you kill the church? Make it very comfortable. Make it weak. Make it satisfied. So any little thing comes up, people just give up. People just check out. We have this kind of spiritual malaise with Manoah, just like in this circumstance, right? You'll see in a moment, he he has constant doubting. He's completely unaware of God's law. God shows up to his family and to his face, and he doesn't even know who he is. Often we say, God, if you just showed up to me, I would believe. Literally, the angel of the Lord showed up to them, and they didn't even know who he was. Are we that apathetic that if God actually answered our prayers like that, we wouldn't even notice him? Maybe. The question you have to ask, I have to ask, is are we apathetic in our faith? Are we spiritually insensitive to the Lord? So that we don't even notice when he shows up. We don't notice when he's at work anymore. So even when he makes things uncomfortable for the purpose of us drawing near to him, we just numb ourselves with all other kinds of things instead of saying, noticing God is doing that for the purpose of us drawing near to him. We're no longer even praying or crying out. We're just comfortable, satisfied, apathetic with the status quo. Maybe our apathy isn't expressed in compromise to the world's idols. Maybe it's expressed in just this lack of longing for the Lord, no longer believing in His promises. Maybe it is pursuing the exact idols that exist around us. They are tempted by the Baals and the Ashtaroth because those are the, they live in a spiritual world where those gods are giving the Canaanites success and promise. And maybe that's the same way. It just expresses itself differently, right? We don't have the same idol worship of statues, but we worship things in our culture, in our world that promise us success and security and peace. I've been reading this book by Eugene Peterson and been sharing with the staff, our elders, and he describes in the introduction of the book the temptation of the church and very strong temptation of pastors to lead churches just like a a business or a shop. He calls it running a shop like shopkeepers. So pastors no longer are pastors, we just become shopkeepers. And he calls out against this, not because he's against growth of the kingdom of God for the sake of the name of Jesus, but sometimes we end up confusing this pursuit of success, like the pursuit of business success, and we make the church into something it was never intended to be. He reminds pastors rightly, and I underline this line, I've been trying to meditate on this and pray through this. He says, the pastor's main responsibility 
is to keep people attentive to God. It's true. And yet maybe I spend too much time on shopkeeping, growing a business. It's not only true of people who lead churches. Maybe church members are also more interested in the growth of that business to provide programs and productions that really draw our attention and excite us, but really don't help us stay attentive to God. And then we become apathetic. And it may, that's the, actually the, the most dangerous kind of apathy. It's, it's an exciting kind of like culturally acceptable kind where things seem like they're going really well, but really there's no attentiveness to God. It's just spiritual blah. Because you can have really exciting things. You can have really large things from a place where there is no spiritual vitality at all. Some of the most intense spiritual moments I've experienced in my life were out of the smallness and quietness of conversations with people who were very near the Lord. Not to teach me something, and yet I'm prone to want the things like this world wants. In this apathy, it makes God's response even more shocking. They're apathetic. They just kind of, they don't even cry out to God anymore. Look what happens, verses 2 to 5. There was a certain man of Zorah, of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Jump down to the end of verse 5. And he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. They don't cry out to God. They're apathetic. And yet God, in his commitment to his people, he doesn't just leave them there. He just wants to save because he is love and mercy. He doesn't leave them there. So even though they don't cry out, he answers a prayer that they're not even actually asking for. He pours out grace even though they don't ask for it. There's no cry for help. There's no confession of sin. He just acts towards his covenant. He recognizes the physical, emotional, spiritual pain of Manoah's wife, especially in this case. We have to look at this promise of children and her barrenness, not from a modern view of childbearing, but you have to remember for generations, actually still most of the world, children are a significant blessing, not an inconvenience to our life's pursuits. They're also the answer for how your legacy lives on. And her infertility is not just personally troubling, it affects generations and legacy and their community. And her infertility is not unnoticed by God. I love how God always enters in to these moments that are very personal and very, sometimes very private, and he knows. Even that's just a small point of a reminder for me. I kind of circled that this week. God knows my pain, even when I'm not even crying out for help, even when I'm not even bringing it to him in prayer. God knows your pain even if you stop coming to him with it. Now, that doesn't mean he's always going to answer it in the relief of the pain or suffering, but he's never, ever unaware. God's grace here, as it is right now, is always unmerited, and it always transforms. Throughout Scripture, we see again and again, God doesn't love us, he doesn't love his people because they're so lovely. 
He makes us lovely because he bestows love on us. He doesn't save us because we're strong. He strengthens us because he chooses to save us. He doesn't choose you because you're so righteous and so holy and so good. He will make you righteous in his selection of you. Because no matter who you are, I want you to hear this, especially if you're young, discovering who Jesus is and what following God is all about, I want you to hear this. No matter who you are, no matter what circumstance you're in, no matter what sin has engulfed your heart, no matter how apathetic you are, if there's a moment where God breaks in and you hear him, there is always hope. God is, in his grace, always wanting to save. If he loves you when you are far from him, when you are small, when you are rebellious, when when Paul says we were his enemies, he will never leave you. We see that in his son, Jesus. So I love this song. I sing it often by myself. He will hold me fast. Because I realized over years and years and years of trying to follow God is as much as I try and grip his hand, think about a child holding a a father's hand, he always holds mine. I was walking with Selah yesterday. We had to divide and conquer because of different activities with the kids. And my younger one, Selah, is five. And... She, she walks so freely in the world. And sadly, this happens in parking lots, right? So, like, I, I often have to, like, grab her hand. And she's holding my hand sometimes, but it's really me holding her hand that gets her safely from where we are to across the street or to avoid cars. It's not her gripping me that actually saves. It's actually me because I'm holding her and directing her and guiding her. And as much as we want to hold on to God, and we try sometimes, the grace of God is that he will always hold us much stronger. He always knows what's ahead. He always knows what's best for us. He will always get us if we want him from point A to point B safely in his grace. A second theme I'd like us to see, not just this sad apathy, that's not only true of the people of God in his time, but true today. It's this constant struggle. I want to, let's still also look at this theme of control. This one really convicted me. Maybe it will convict you. Look at verses 3 to 5 again. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not born children, and you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall be upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. She, this wife, who actually remains unnamed, receives amazing news that her infertility would be overcome, that they would have a child. Now we read this and we automatically assume supernatural things. It doesn't tell us that this is a miraculous birth. Maybe they just had babies the same old normal way that people have been having babies for a long time. But their infertility is overcome. This child is now chosen, though, before he's even conceived. He's anointed by God before he's even conceived. Again, an amazing thing that shows us why life is so important. All life, unborn life, lives of people who are low and depressed and ignored in society. We care about life because everyone is made in the image of God. Even before they're conceived, God has a plan for him. He has a Nazarite vow, which we read about in Numbers chapter 6, 
which contains three main stipulations. Two even apply to the unnamed wife of Manoah. The one that doesn't apply to her is the cutting of hair. It would only apply to him after he's born. But she also cannot drink alcohol or strong drink. She must not come in contact with anything that is dead. The vow is so serious and so challenging that often it's only taken in short periods when you're seeking the Lord's favor or seeking the Lord in His will. But Samson will have this vow on him before he's even born all the way until he dies. Interestingly, the very beginning of this announcement only happens with Manoah's wife. That's purposeful. And we'll see this contrast between the responses of this unnamed wife and Manoah. She immediately goes to her husband to tell him, which indicates that at least there's a, a genuine kind of belief, a small belief even if it is. In our skepticism, we would maybe judge her as naive. Remember, the, this, read the story for as it is. It's actually presented as faith, especially in contrast to Manoah. Manoah's initial response is he needs proof. Now, to give him credit, he actually prays. This is the first time you see prayer in this narrative. He asked the Lord to, to show him again who this man was, mainly because he doesn't believe his wife. How many husbands are guilty of this? <laughs> you don't believe your wife. We'll come back to that. In some ways, there's a jealousy that marks him, an insecure attempt to recapture power in the household. But God, again, this is gracious. He answers his prayer, and he still needs to verify. Are you the same guy? He doesn't trust his wife. And some, like, the angel appears, all God's grace. And here's what Manoah tries to do. Not only does he want to confirm because he doesn't believe his wife, he doesn't trust her, he also tries to control the situation. He wants more information, but he gets no new info. The angel of the Lord just repeats exactly what he told Manoah's wife. This control, this distrust foreshadows Samson's distrust in disregard for his vow. We want God to prove himself to us. But God often just wants our faith. Since he doesn't gain anything more, he still tries to control it, right? He tries to manipulate the situation by trying to get him to stay to eat with them. Now, this may be just a practice of hospitality in their culture, but I think it's a little more than this. He's trying all he can with his inhuman means to try and get more information from someone. So he tries to get this person to stay, to feed them, to try and get them comfortable, get them kind of pliable for more information. I read this this week, and I immediately thought of all those grandmas who want to feed you, right? And if you come from certain families where grandmas are the main kind of cook and main kind of center of your family, they're often around food, right? And this grandma would prepare amazing feasts. This happens in European families. This happens in Asian families. But I can imagine my Asian grandma just, she always, whenever you see her, I'm always ready for a statement that just kind of gets to the, it, she doesn't intend it that way, but it's kind of like just savage, right? It just gets right to the heart. You see your grandma and you're like, you haven't eaten enough. You're too skinny. And then you're like, ah. Oh especially as a young boy trying to get stronger. And then later as you get bigger, you see your grandma, oh, you've been eating too much, but here's way more food anyways, right? That's your grandma. Just, just says it to you just bluntly and it goes right there. He offers to prepare a feast. It's really just a chance to manipulate. The angel doesn't fall for it. He says, no, you got to make an offering to the Lord. 
God accepts this offering graciously, even though he has wrong motivations. Manoah finally realizes this is God, and he begins to freak out. He says, no one can see God. We're going to die. His wife, she's so calm in this entire story, right? If he was going to kill us, he would have killed us a lot earlier, <laughs> right? This is amazing. I, I thought about this a lot this week. Just filled with thankfulness to the godly women in my life, both my mother, my wife, other women who've come across in my life. Think of my youth leader as a young person, various people. If you have a godly spouse, let me speak to husbands for a second. I think this scripture reminds us that if you have a godly spouse, our marriages, our lives would be in some ways so much better if we learned early on that God may actually be using our godly wives to have way more common sense and insight than we sometimes do, <laughs> right? This passage directly confronts this misapplication of chauvinism that sometimes exists in Christian culture. Because in our desire to have this headship that honors the Lord, sometimes we misapply that. that we, I believe there's a differentiation between men and women in our roles, and yet this gives us no place to belittle or to look down or to disregard women. And scriptures often lift up, especially here, look at this. The woman is presented as calm, having faith, having common sense, like He's freaking out. And she's like, no, if he wanted to kill us, he would have done it a lot earlier. Calm down, man. And then she gives birth. Husbands, if, and I'm saying, there's a condition here. If you have an ungodly wife, that may not be the, the you know, advice here. But if you have a godly wife, as Manoah's wife is, it may be much better for us to very carefully pay attention to our wives as God has gifted them to us for common sense and spiritual insight and grounding in ways that maybe we don't have naturally because we're maybe prone to fear like Manoah or prone to control. I, I read this and I'm like, that, this feels exactly like me. I want to just control all the situation, get as much information. I want to just manipulate as much as I can. Maybe that's the lesson for some of us who have godly wives, godly women in our lives. Wives, if you're godly, you won't go back to your husband and say, look, <laughs> look what you need to do. Listen to me. No, that's, no. We see throughout Scripture again and again, what Peter says, even to a woman who has an unbelieving husband, right? You, you honor the Lord. You, you express this faithfulness through your, through your behavior, your posture, your action, your submission to the Lord. And God uses that to proclaim who he is to your husband, even if he doesn't know God. But here, here's the main thought control, this main theme. We want to control like Manoah. We want more info. We want more proof. We want plans. We want strategy. We want to control. But God wants our heart, our character. We're, we're trying to ply, ply God's messengers for information. What He wants is our heart. Think about what He's asking. What is this child's mission? What is He supposed to do and God gives only information of what his heart and his character is supposed to be. He's supposed to be set aside for me. He's supposed to be dedicated to me. He gives him the only little bit of information he says he will begin to save Israel. God gives more details about his heart. How much should we learn from this about control, about the heart? 
Often I think about, maybe you're thinking about some serious plans or issues that are happening in your life, and you are trying to understand it, you're trying to get information, you're trying your best to have wise strategy regarding some issue in your life, and there's nothing inherently unbiblical or ungodly about those things. I think the ungodly, unbiblical part is when we put those things, especially out of human effort, over and above what's clear in Scripture about God wanting our character again and again and again. It's the same issue with the kings. The, king, the people of God want a king that looks like all the other pagan nations' kings. So they select Saul. How did that go? I, I think when you read the, the, the description of godly leaders in the New Testament regarding elders and deacons, it's amazing how unamazing the list is. He says almost nothing about what they're supposed to do. And I think that is purposeful because he knows we will care more about the doing and we will care less about the heart. So he says, no, they must be loving and kind. They must not be greedy. He aims at the heart. They must not be quarrelsome. So they can't be people on Twitter all the time just attacking people. He looks at the heart. How much do we want to control? We want to know. We want to know everything here, and yet God's saying, no, 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 give me your heart. And we see this is exactly this origin story with Manoah is exactly where Samson goes to. Last thing we'll anchor on is kind of this amazing way that Scripture presents itself and about God. Look again with me at Judges 13, look at verses 24 and 25, how it ends. And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew and the Lord blessed him. That even of itself is all God's grace. He named him after a Canaanite pagan god. There's no name of Yahweh in this at all. It's just a Canaanite god. And yet God blessed him. And the spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Menadon and between Zorah and Eshtol. Samson's the last judge in this book. He's the last great hope for Israel. And yet we would be very disappointed if we placed our hope in him. Because all he's going to do is begin something. Again, look at verse 5 again. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Samson can only begin. And actually, he begins very terribly. But God, in his grace, he will finish this plan of salvation. He will save. You notice there's a lot of parallels to Jesus' story here. They're both receiving promises and anointing before their birth. In many ways, their births are both miraculous in different ways. Samson's mom was barren. Mary was a virgin. Very big differences in their stories, too, though. If you read, and we'll look at next week, the birth of Samson brought joy and honor, kind of, kind of overcoming the shame of infertility. What happened in the birth of Jesus, as we look at an Advent, it brought disgrace and shame. I think that's purposeful because Jesus comes not to save us through power. He enters into our shame to take all of it. A lot of parallels here, right? Jesus was a Nazarene who was rejected. Samson was a Nazarite, though, respected. Very big contrast there, though. Jesus, 
is presented in the book of Judges, especially through Samson, as the true and final Samson. He finishes what Samson could only terribly begin. And as much as we, through our childhood stories of looking at felt kind of children's stories about Samson, are amazed by his strength, his power, we ultimately worship Jesus because only Jesus can complete what Samson begins. That's what I would hope you begin to see as we look at Scripture the way we do here. Right? Jesus tells us throughout Scriptures, even at the road to Emmaus, he says, all of this is pointing to me. And that's because as we look at Scripture, our hearts should be set aflame, not just for information, because it draws us to this final saving work. They needed saving from apathy, from oppression, from the Philistines. They needed saving from their own rebellion. And we see that this is all fulfilled in Jesus, who was a Nazarene, who was born, who lived a perfect life, who died not because he deserved to die, but because he took on our shame, our sin. And though he was buried and was in the grave for three days, he overcame the final enemy. He defeated something greater than the Philistines. And he said on the cross as he gave his last breath, it is finished because he completely saves. Would you take a moment to respond with me before we take the Lord's Supper? Ask the Holy Spirit to draw you to the Son, the Son of the living God, Jesus. And maybe as you ask the Spirit to draw you to Jesus, maybe there's a confrontation of apathy, a relinquishing of control, so that you would begin to become more like Jesus. Father, would you pour out your grace again so that even if we're not even praying anymore, you would still break through. May your grace wake us from the slumber of comfort. Would your grace free us from control. Would your spirit graciously lead us to the cross and may it lead us towards the joyous cry of hallelujah because we know the tomb is empty. And may that stir us as your people today in 2022 to be salt and light, to be all that you call us to be in your son, Jesus. Fully, completely devoted to you because you completely and finally save. And we believe that, we cling to it. Amen.